Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Karin Mahajan. Karin is the author of Family Planning, a finalist for the International Dylan Thomas Prize, and the Association of Small Bombs, which was shortlisted for the 2016 National Book Awards, won the 2017 New York Public Library Young Lions Award, and was named one of the New York Times Book Review's 10 Best Books of 2016. In 2017, he was selected as one of Granta's Best Young American Novelists. His essays and criticism have appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker Online, the New Republic, and elsewhere. Originally from New Delhi, he resides in upstate New York. The Association of Small Bombs is an intricate and expansive story about the lives affected by a Delhi market bombing. Karin constructs a nuanced network of characters, including a young survivor, devastated parents, and terrorists, and he follows them through the bombing and long after it. The narrative explores large and small-scale issues, from sociopolitical movements to acute personal grief, with clarity and precision. Here, Karin and I talk about how Delhi shapes his writing, even though he had to leave it to become a writer, and how he decides what to explain to the reader about his culture. We also discuss writing brand new drafts, which he does each round, submitting to telling instead of showing, and avoiding, for years sometimes, a project's central idea. I think one tends to avoid one's deepest material because what you have access to in your everyday life feels very urgent when you're going through it. But the stuff that really matters to you is often just buried. And you know that if you were to reach it, there would be some danger, not just to you, but to the people who are associated with it. And I don't mean this in a completely autobiographical sense, but I do think that fiction writers draw on on real memories and real events to create their fictional universes. You need to get beyond the sort of politeness of everyday life, the sort of veil of politeness you left behind, and um, just say what you mean. When I was reading up for our conversation, I saw a couple different places where you said that novel writing to you as a novelist is is a kind of religious act. And I know that part of that repetition could just be getting used to being on the, the promotion circuit and sort of being asked similar questions. But that was really striking to me. And, and I saw some ways in which I think it could be true for me, but I wanted to hear, you know, what that meant to you. Uh, I think what I meant was that essentially when you're, when you're doing it, when you're really engaged in writing a novel, when you're really deep into it, you do become briefly egoless. Uh, even though, of course, like the irony is that anyone who sets out to make any kind of art must possess kind of like a big damaged ego. But that that moment where you kind of lose yourself like feels like the closest thing I've had to any kind of religious moment. And also, you know, you um, you have this great feeling when you're just kind of seeing um the setting of your novel and the people in it and you're seeing them and writing about them in a very direct way and uh that too i think comes with a lot of dedication and research and almost like those things seem to me like a secular form of prayer um in in the early stages of a novel yeah that's fascinating and that's and that's interesting that's kind of less the direction that I took it and and i I interpreted it sort of more in that kind of quiet meditative way of of when you sort of feel removed you know when you are really deep in it and you feel kind of more removed from the outside mm-hmm. world and kind of more more in touch with this you know for lack of a better term like spiritual or kind of inner world yeah yeah i mean I think it also I also meant that it is this feeling of kind of just trusting your instinct and letting yourself flow from one thought to the next. Um, so maybe that comports more with what you're saying about being in this meditative space. Mm. But generally, I have to say, I don't, I'm not a religious person, so I don't know if I would go around saying this much more. Yeah, because, <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, yeah, I think, yeah, I'm not particularly pro-religion. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and and I was struck too by your descriptions of the process of writing your most recent novel, Association of Small Bombs. And um, you had this line that I think just really captures the writing process, period, uh, for me at least, where you said, you know, it was so hard for years and years to kind of put it together, and then all of a sudden it just wasn't. And I feel like that's so often how the writing process goes, where you just, you know, like, I I feel like for me, I have kind of the phase where I have to drag myself to the computer and like 
more or less chain myself there to get any work done. And then once I push through that, I have the phase where I resent everything that takes me away from it. Yeah. I, and I think that again has to do with just being able to see things clearly. Like I, I always feel that I'm avoiding the central thrust of my work for years. And you have that moment where for whatever reason you stop avoiding it and you go right for it. And um, I guess you have to spend years kind of just digging around in your subconscious before you can allow yourself to make yourself vulnerable like that. Have you thought about what that is, why you tend to avoid? You know, I think one tends to avoid one's deepest material because what you have access to in your everyday life uh, feels very urgent when you're going through it. But uh, the stuff that really matters to you is often just buried. And um, you know that if you were to reach it, there would be some danger, not just to you, but to the people who are associated with it. And I don't mean this in a completely autobiographical sense, but I do think that fiction writers draw on, um, on real memories and real events to create their fictional universes. And so I think that's, that's all it is. Like you, um, you need to get beyond the sort of politeness of everyday life, the sort of veil of politeness you left behind and um, just say what you mean. How much of that do you feel for you uh, was also about physically leaving the place that you were writing about? You know, it was, it was partly about that, but it's less so. I think in my case, some of it had to do with the fact that with the second novel, the trouble I had and why it took me so long is that um, I knew very clearly the parts of New Delhi and the things in New Delhi that I wanted to write about. Um, it, it wasn't really that much of a challenge when I wrote my first book. But my first book was, um, I think, troubling to people in Delhi, and it, it certainly troubled uh, people in my extended family who made the classic mistake of thinking it was somehow about them. Sure, when it like wasn't. this character is and me. And it made me... Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense. You're writing about Delhi, so people start thinking, okay, this is, this is, and it's set in a particular neighborhood, and they think, this is me. That wasn't my intention, but what it did do is it made me very wary of doing that again for my second novel. I didn't, I think I didn't want to uh, press any buttons, and that's why I couldn't write for a long time, because I was avoiding the things that really mattered to me, which were exactly those subjects. I, I, and so, yeah, the minute I got over that fear, the book kind of poured out very easily and I, I was writing about places and things I knew very well. But I had this feeling very much of circling, of being on the outskirts of my experience for the first three or four years of writing that book and of thinking that that was fine, that, you know, maybe you can just make the most of um, of that kind of distant material too. It turned out to not be true. I want I asked that about the physicality because I write often about where I'm from and which is a place that I think a lot about mm -hmm. and process a lot in my work despite the fact that now at this point I'm very close to living outside of that place longer than I lived there um but it but it mm -hmm. sort of is a bigger presence in my mind for my not being there and I just wondered if that was something that resonated with you as well I've talked to other writers who who have said similar things yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, the minute you leave a place that you know very well, that's your home, it becomes a kind of troubled space for you, which maybe it wouldn't be if you were still there. It wouldn't be the site of this, almost a kind of, um, you know, in my case, like I was there for the for, for my entire childhood uh, till I left for college. It almost becomes the site of this trauma that you can't solve, which is the trauma of leaving. Mm. And um I, I do I do think that I don't actually like being away from Delhi and I don't like the fact that I write while I'm away from it. But yeah, I didn't become a writer till I left Delhi. So I think that's the eternal paradox that most writers face. And maybe you feel this too, but you kind of are stuck going back and forth between that place, uh, which gave you the material to become a writer and the other place which allowed you to become a writer. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and for me, that place is the U.S. So I, I but I have to say, I, I dream often of being someone who had never left Delhi, had never known the outside world, was someone just buried deep within a culture and had all the benefits and supports of that culture rather than someone who's had to 
go outside it and kind of discover uh painfully like who uh who I am in a certain way like I, I think that coming into self knowledge is painful and i and um it wouldn't have happened if i hadn't left and at the same time i wish i hadn't left right <laughs> right because you kind of on both on both ends there's something that you can't well something you can't access on the on the receiving end and then something that you can't get back on the departing end right 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 exactly Going back to that that idea of circling the central themes, um, are you aware? Or have you have you thought much about what actually enabled you to break through that fear barrier? I I think it was uh, being pushed up against a wall. That I I, I have like a very high um, sort of I would say like. Uh, meter or, 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 or a kind of sensitive machinery when it comes to truth. And I could feel myself not being truthful. Mm-hmm. And that's why I couldn't finish the book. Um, and so I reached a point where I couldn't write at all. And I was then forced to just be truthful. And, um, you know, I, I was sort of, I was uh, living in a place I didn't love that much. I had spent six years on a book. It's that classic thing where you're like, all right, well, am I going to really give it up after five or six years of working on it? And, um, you know, in, in my desperation, I, I just wrote what I could. Were there points during that five or six years where you thought about giving it up for good? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I did think about it several times. Uh, but I'm, I guess I'm kind of a finisher. I'm like a completist. Like I, on, on some level, I knew that I would, I would, you know, I would keep working on it till I was dead if I didn't finish it. Uh, so I, I, that was another incentive to go to go and like put a put a lid on it. And I, I think in that same interview, you said uh, you made reference to writing the final draft of the second book from scratch. Um, so, so mm-hmm. which which I guess maybe means you just kind of had those few years and and saw what you didn't want to do and started over. Is that was that what happened? Yeah, I follow this process for every kind of writing that I do. I always, uh, I don't reuse sentences from previous drafts. Like I at all kind of believe that a piece of, yeah, I believe that a piece of writing is a kind of enclosed performance and that each sentence should be in a kind of musical conversation with every other sentence in the in the piece. And for that to happen, you need to have written it kind of in one energetic swoop. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like, I don't mean, you know, obviously it still took six months to write the final draft, but I was very much in one headspace the entire time I wrote it. Um, each sentence was following the sentence before it and was in a relationship with it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I think that has the other effect of not over-stylizing your work, where the, you're concerned with the integrity of the larger thought not with the vanity of the of the individual sentence. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty stupid process, actually, because it means that I, like, bang my head and do draft after draft. But then the nice thing sometimes is that occasionally I'll end up with a piece or a book where I, I, I know it holds together from beginning to end, that if someone were to read it, they would feel almost exactly as I was feeling it as I, as I wrote it. Let's back up and talk a little bit about how you came to writing. I you you moved to the states for college. Did you move to become a writer? Did you have any idea what you were going to do post college? You know, I had written some uh, really bad poetry when I was in high school in India, and um, you know, I, I enjoyed writing, and I also had been the the editor and reporter for a cricket website when I was in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I knew I wanted to keep writing in some form. But um, at the same time, I was kind of like a, you know, a good Indian kid. And I thought that I should study computers or economics. And that's why partly why I went to Stanford. And I did end up majoring in economics, but I also studied English. And I think while I was there, it became very clear to me that I wanted to be a writer. I was um, I was doing music criticism 
for the 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 Stanford newspaper and I was also writing poetry and then I started taking fiction classes and I think of all the things I was doing I was the worst at fiction um my first class was with Adam Johnson who's just an amazing teacher and um you know this was this was long before he had had won the Pulitzer prize he'd published um a collection of stories at this point and was very well known on campus uh, and I turned in very bad stories for his class. And I remember feeling kind of challenged by that and thinking to myself, okay, well, I've got to get better at this. And um, I think that challenge is what turned me into a fiction writer. It's almost like a like a competitive, like a self-competitive streak or something. Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, you probably feel the same way. What What makes it such an enticing thing to do is that it is like a puzzle you're constantly solving. Like yeah. it never becomes intellectually easy. So I think I had that feeling very quickly. And, um, you know, that's the reason I like it. And that's the reason I hate it too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, I think about it a lot in terms of, um, I do a lot of yoga and I think that I like this them both for the same reason, because there's always what you'll often hear yoga teachers say is like deeper places to go with the practice. Um, But that same thing means that you can be trying to do a single pose for like a decade and not get it, you know? Um, Right. And I, yeah, Yeah, exactly. And and it's funny. And I think it's so crucial, like that moment of discovery where you either like, you know, react the way that you did or react to say like, Oh, I must be terrible at this. Never mind. Well, I did. I mean, I still think I'm terrible at it and I, I can barely look at my own writing. But I think that I enjoy, for me, what, why, I, why I do it is I really enjoy that moment when after lots of struggle, everything comes together and you can see it purely in images. And it usually just means that I've been able to get rid of, um, again, all the sort of ways in which we we veil our own experience whether it's by you know using terminology or through um kind of lies we tell ourselves when that falls away that's such a such a great feeling but yeah i mean um i i wish i was the sort of person who liked his own work i think i i admire people who can do that because that's a healthy way of living i think yeah i mean i i can't I feel like I have a, there's a real half-life for my, a very short half-life for my own work where like I can look back and be like, that was a good sentence or, you know, and then like the more mm-hmm. distance, like just the more atrocious I think it is. Yeah. And also that's, that comes back to that earlier thing we were talking about where, you know, why, why I like the idea of uh, producing a kind of effortless seeming draft. It's because the stuff that you tend to do most effortlessly is the stuff that people end up liking the most and thinking is the most authentic, not the not the material that you've desperately labored over necessarily. Right. So I think it's that um, that particular paradox too that is really hard to unravel when you are a writer. Yeah, yeah. So you were at Stanford. Then you did you go straight to your MFA program at, uh, at in Texas? No, I had a kind of unusual um, route into the MFA, which is that while I was a senior at Stanford, I started writing my first novel, and then I continued working on it when I graduated. I was um, working as an editor at a small publishing house in San Francisco, McAdam Cage, which which isn't around anymore. And while I was there, I would kind of write in the evenings. And I ended up finishing the book a couple of years out of college and selling it. Um, Harper Perennial published it in 2008, right when Obama became um, became president. And it um, it was it was published in a few other countries, and it was very exciting. But I didn't earn enough money from it to become a full time writer. I was um, I I got a full time job working for the New York City government. Um, afterwards, and I did another job after that in Bangalore. And finally, I reached a point, I think, where I realized that I wouldn't finish my second book unless I had dedicated time to write. And also, I realized that, you know, like many other writers before me, that teaching would be a a potential um, good form of employment to have alongside writing. And that's when I 
applied to MFAs and uh, went to the Michener Center. But there was a seven-year gap though, between uh, graduating from college and doing the MFA. Were you unusual in the program for having already published a novel? Yeah, I, it definitely was unusual. And, uh, you know, I even wondered if they would admit me. But I knew that several other writers had done this. Like, I'm friends with uh, Eleanor Catton, and she had already sold her first novel when she went to Iowa. And I think it's becoming more common because you kind of do need an MFA if you're going to teach. And so I think that uh, writing programs recognize they shouldn't penalize people who've already published a book. I think especially if you're young and have only published one. So it was unusual, but uh, you know, in the end, I don't think it made much of a difference. And I, I it turns out I had a lot to learn still. So it was a very good, good thing that I went to an MFA. Yeah, yeah. What um, your first novel? We haven't really talked about family planning. Where did the idea for that come from? The idea for that came from um, the fact that I was, um, I was interested in the way that many Indians had had many Indian couples that had very large families and, and in the early 20th century, um, you know, it was pretty normal for a couple to have 10 kids or 15 kids. And I thought it would be interesting to set, to take that kind of family and put it in the modern era in about the year 2000. And I also wanted to explore the sort of closeted relationship that people in India have with sex. And, um, those two things came together when I came up with this idea of uh, a minister in Delhi who is um, obsessed with having more and more children and is only attracted to his wife when she, when she's pregnant. And I think the minute I had that idea, it felt like it could contain an entire novel because, um, you know, he would have a big family. He'd be a minister involved in politics. He's somewhat abusive towards his wife, mm-hmm. who's forced into this subservient relationship with him. Um, his kids are bewildered by the number of siblings they have and are kind of ashamed about it. Um, and so you, when you have when you have that kind of setup, I think it can provide the motor for an entire novel. I loved the sort of the psychological games that he that the minister plays with the kids as well, like kind of playing them against each other and against their mother and um, it was really like, you know, my first introduction to your work was Associated with Small Moms, and then I went back and read Family Planning. And um, I'm sure you've heard this before. I mean, obviously, it's very different subject matter and, and needs to be treated very differently. But I'm, it was, it's, it's so funny. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you <laughs> thought like, that. I, and that's oh. why I vowed never to do a funny book again, because it was so hard to be funny. <laughs> I, I'm, I think I still like admire comic novels more because... Uh, it it really taught me once you crack a joke on page one, you have to crack another one on page two. Like right. you can't stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that must make it even harder um, in the revision process because you're just like, oh, this this stupid joke again. Like I I've seen this joke forty five times. It's not funny anymore to me. Yeah, no, totally. I felt that way. I liked in in both of both of your novels too, and I was again reading an interview with you, and I liked this. Uh, this thing that you were talking about, you brought up Bolaño and the idea of who your novels are addressed to and and what you are and are not going to explain about cultures that might not be familiar to some of your readers. And I wonder if you could talk a bit more, you know, if is that something that you're thinking about in the writing process? Do stories just kind of come out the way they come out? Or are you thinking about that kind of representation on a on a more granular level? You know, yeah, it's a super complicated issue for anyone who writes about another culture because a lot of it has to do with power dynamics between cultures, right? Like, right. you know, I think it's it's accepted that uh, in the third world, we, we'll read novels from the US and, and the UK and none of the references will be explained um, because part of the assumption is that we live kind of in a in a Anglophone world order. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, but and doing the reverse is risky in a way because, uh, you know, it's not uncommon even now for me to see comments from readers saying, you know, but I wish he'd explained these references or I wish he told us more about the history. And I think that, you know, you have to occasionally take a stand. And my stand has very much been that I'm going to write as if 
my culture and my place is the center of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I won't I won't stoop to explaining anything. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to be obscure for the sake of being obscure, which can be the other side of it, a kind of relishing of your own exotic credentials. So, um, you know, I think that uh, that mix, I think I got better with the association of small bombs, but, and I can feel it, feel it, um, becoming more and more natural with every book. And the truth is that now I don't think about it at all as Mm. as an issue. Like I'm just confident that, uh, I won't, that I'll explain when I need to, and that I won't when it seems unnecessary. And when I can trust the reader to either Google something or just kind of go with the flow. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the, the thing I was gonna bring up next is the the idea of trusting the reader, and I think you know most readers of literary fiction enjoy being challenged in that way and thinking like, oh well, I have to go see what that is, or I have to translate this random sentence that is in another language. And you know, I'm thinking of um, Esme Wajun Wang's book, uh, Border of Paradise. Like there, are, you know, yeah, she's the, a she's a friend of mine. You know, yeah. we were in a writing group together. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I had her on um, a few months ago, <laughs> and I really enjoyed talking with her as well. But well, yeah, we also talked about this idea of like, you know. The, why is the Western the default? Like, why, why is why are you assuming that a reader who is being proactive enough to come to your book doesn't want to take that additional step? Yeah, I think that's a good point. That yes, the reader, the, whoever's picked up my book, has already agreed to read a book about India, and they're they're less likely to anyway harbor a kind of xenophobic attitude towards right. towards <laughs> references. I think that's a good point. Do you feel like? You have to resist, I'm guessing this is more in the promotion phase of things, um, or do you care to resist, you know, kind of being placed in a sort of lineage of, of Indian literature and, and kind of, pe- you know, do you find that you, people want to kind of put you in context? You know, people do, and, and I'm not sure still how to respond to it, because I would say that when I first started writing, when I published Family Planning, I was very firm about the fact that I was an Indian writer, and I certainly felt that was true. It didn't seem like there was any need to debate that question. Um, now, I I do feel that there are certain disadvantages that come with being boxed in. And I think, um, you know, there's there's still a sense where people turn to books by ethnic writers to be educated about their cultures as opposed to, um, you know, turning to them for just uh, a larger understanding of human problems, mm-hmm. right? Like a, a person picking up a, I'm just trying to think, a p- person picking up like a Saul Bellow novel is is probably is probably not doing it to learn about Jewish culture, but just to, uh, just to sort of get a sense of what humanity felt like in the 60s. And a person picking up a, a novel by an Indian guy is probably interested in what Indian politics was like at a particular time, and I, I can't fault any of my any of the readers for that. That's just unfortunately how the world is. But I think that I would like to move away from that and certainly be seen as someone who's unconnected with an identity or with a race, and um, as someone for whom you know the Indian experience is central, but not the main reason behind the writing, if that makes sense. An aspect of Association of Small Bombs that I really enjoyed was how you interwove the story, the various characters' stories. And then, you know, earlier when I was preparing for our conversation, um, I I noticed this thing that you said... um, that you find that a lot of these books where there are multiple perspectives unwind in parallel and don't actually have much interweaving and that you wanted to do something where the characters were passing in and out of each other's lives, Um, which I think is really interesting and also very difficult because if you take that too far, you're kind of in treacly like crash territory where like, oh, and the cop is the Mm -hmm. father and, you know, everything is like has too too nice of a bow on it. Um, And I wonder if you can talk about how you put that together. Yeah, no, thanks for noticing that. I, you know, I I think pretty much what you said is true, that I don't care so much for books where 
three or four completely different things are unfolding in parallel and they're being held together mainly because they were written by the same person mm-hmm. and a person ends up having the same concerns. Like I always wonder why aren't these just four different books? Right. Of course, there's many exceptions to that. Like there's many books in which that also works. So it's not a blanket statement. And at the same time, as you said, the ones in which the overlapping is too um, is too clear or too based on coincidences, that can seem silly as well. Um, you know, where, as you said, like someone turns out to be another character's father or two people suddenly end up at the same space. So that, that there was that temptation with my book where I could have decided, oh, a bomb goes off and a young kid survives and he runs into the terrorist as the terrorist is escaping, right? Like, mm-hmm. and they have a conversation and years later they meet again and they recognize each other. That would be the easy plotty way of doing that. In my mind, I, I knew very much that um, that probably is not how things would unfold in real life. Uh, in real life, people are actually held together by places and events more so than they are by chance interactions. And even if they do have chance interactions, often those don't have any depth, right? Like again, if I if I had the scenario where a victim ran into a terrorist. Um, they might see each other for a second, um, and then they might you might enter a police station, and and then it turns into a police procedural. So I I thought to myself, okay, we I already have the bomb which is connecting people psychologically and physically, and I'm going to use that space, and that's it. And any coincidences that arise after that would would be would be very organic, you know. Um, so there's a scene in which the parents the Quranas who've lost their kids go to a police station to see a terrorist being tortured, a person they think is a terrorist being tortured. And that's a completely believable scene and doesn't involve, doesn't involve a coincidence, right? That's something that would, um, that's been, that would have happened anyway. Right. So yeah, I think, I think it took a long time, but um, I was happy with how the, the structure of the novel turned out. And I think maybe in the same conversation, you, um, you talk about again going back to the the final draft process that the the fluidity that came once you hit the tone. But the thing I was really struck by in this particular interview that I read, and I can't remember where I saw it, but you said uh, the moment I hit that tone, which also relies a lot on telling as opposed to showing. Um, and I think you know that that's so the opposite of the tenet that you're always taught, and especially you know I, I was trained in journalism, and like that's a huge tenant in journalism and and mm-hmm. I, I was really curious about how you sort of retrained yourself They're like no no no, that's fine I don't know how I retrained myself I I think it, it had to do with the subject matter which is that there are certain subject matters that are particularly good for showing and then there, there are others that are better suited to telling and I, I think extreme grief might be uh, might work better with telling. And the reason is that extreme grief doesn't manifest in any kind of dramatic way uh, in a scene necessarily. It could just be a person sitting down, curled up into a ball. And, you know, yes, I could paint a million pictures about someone in that state of grief, but the reader instinctively understands what a couple who've lost their children is going to. They know that it's the worst thing that's happened. I don't need to belabor the point through finely constructed scenes. And I feel like that's something that fiction does pretty poorly anyway, where there's times when you feel, oh, you've given me three scenes, but one sentence would have been more than enough. Mm. I'm not I'm not a fool. I could have followed what was happening. And I think that freed me up because then what you can do is when you're doing that kind of telling, only the most original, unusual things start meriting scenes. And again, uh, this was a book about uh, a, a, something that people don't deal with in their everyday lives. So, um, you know, every time the, the actual act of the bombing came up, it would it would shift into a scene. Um, but the rest of it, I could move fluidly between the two forms. You know, in terms of the kind of psychological observations 
I've noticed that I noticed several reviews. I noticed just even at the time when I was just like reading the book that numerous reviews pointed out the link that you draw between grief and sex. And I wondered if you just just is that stuff that comes out in the in the process of writing or do you do you find that that's something that you're constantly watching people? Uh, no, I think it just comes out in the sense that I'm interested in that deeply anyway, and I'm probably always cataloging it. I'm probably cataloging my own strange responses to things, uh-huh. and I, I'm particularly interested in how people are irrational. Um, and again, that's why not relying so much on internal monologue is is good sometimes because you can just show how people are behaving irrationally and you don't need to take the reader through the thought process. The reader can just impute it and can instinctively also connect with it because the reader himself or herself knows about irrational behavior. So, um, and of course, there were, there were certain things I did research, like uh, I did want to really know what it would feel like to be a couple who'd lost their children. But to be honest, I would say 80% of it proceeded on um, just instinct and guesswork. So what is your, do you have a writing, a standard writing process? Do you, do you have a, an ideal state when you're working on a project? No, I mean, I haven't had an ideal state for like a couple of years. I think I would say that I, I try to write first thing in the morning, uh, maybe for a couple of hours and, if I take an afternoon nap, this sounds so decadent, but if I take an afternoon nap and I wake up, then I can usually have the equivalent of, a, of another writing morning. Um, you know, and I, I feel that I can write maybe a thousand or two thousand words a day sometimes. But the perfect state only arises, I think, with novels when you really know what the whole novel is about and right. then just sit down and do it day after day for months. Because otherwise, what it looks like from the outside is like there's a madman sitting in his house, scrawling things every time he gets an idea, getting really excited, and then a day Cashing. later realizing that it's junk. Yeah. yeah. And I think I've come to see that this part, this this method is actually a way of doing kind of advanced research for a final draft, that you're building all these little fragments, but it doesn't feel that way. Um and the law, and the the final thing I think that for fiction being in one place physically day after day is helpful because you can't run away from uh, the problems you're facing on the page, and also there's nothing like turning off the internet, like using self control, not 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 the actual action, but the software. I think <laughs> that that can help. Yeah. Are you? Uh, do you write by hand? I write mostly by hand. And then I tend to transcribe it. Um, but again, it seems so fluid. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if the next book was written entirely on a computer. And I do feel that each method is is better for for something else. Like handwriting is better for telling, in my case, and also for kind of longer flowing sentences. Mm-hmm. But if I want to do something journalistic and sharp, the computer is sometimes better because it doesn't allow me to uh, just zigzag off in any direction that I want to. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also like, cause I, I have been writing a lot by hand in the last few months as well. And I like it as a, as, as it fits into the kind of daily routine as well. Cause that it's, you can, you can do the generative writing by hand in the morning and then in the afternoon transcribe it and it's still writing, but it's not quite as, uh, depleting as the morning's work was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I like that too. I'm glad to hear other people are doing it. <laughs> are you uh, doing a lot of revising, you know, page by page, day by day? Yeah, I do it when I'm when I'm transcribing. You know, that's when I do a lot of the the re- revision, and also, um, you know, then I once I've typed it all out and and transcribed it, then I go over it many more times to iron out the sentences. I, I tend to read it out loud. And that means that certain things just fall away because you realize that they're unnecessary mm-hmm. or they're over explaining. And the hardest part of revision, I think, is not pruning things down. It's understanding when you actually need more in a particular place. And I think that's 
um, that's where you you need to rely on your friends and on good readers. They're the only ones who can tell you when something is feeling a little thin. Uh, and then going back and kind of fleshing that out is always very hard, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think that's more of how I work as well. And I am not, you know, I've heard it said that there are like, the the taker outers and the adder inners between the first and second draft and i think that i my instinct is very much to just kind of keep pushing forward and then i kind of have to it's more it's more it's less in my nature to sit and sink into a passage and let it kind of continue to play out and it can also be a mistake to do that right because you don't know if the passage is going to make it into the final book that's why i try not to over edit while I'm writing because I know from my own experience that I throw away so many drafts that this could just be, you know, the, the third of 10 drafts or something. So then when you're getting to those, those final couple drafts and you're starting over, I mean, are you still, you're still refer, are you still referring back to the previous draft? No, I never do. I'm trying to use only my memory. I mean, I, I, Usually what I'll do is I would have read over everything that I've done before. I would have read the any kind of excerpts that I like. I would have read all my research. And then I put it all away and then let my memory do the work. And the way I know that a draft has worked out, which is really, again, a foolish way of knowing it, is that I can I can tell if it's ending on a, on a note that is satisfying and firm. And... Uh, if it is, then I know the whole the thing as a whole has a kind of integrity, and now I can mess around with it as much as I want. But I really I have an object now that I can play with. But there's times when I'll do 50 pages and I'll realize, oh, this is getting thinner and thinner as opposed to getting uh, more and more complicated. Mm-hmm. And crap, I'm going to have to stop. Right, right. So, so you're sort of going on the idea that if it's integral to the story, your memory will retain it. Yes. Got it. I can't tell, like, this is a part where listening to that feels horrifying. <laughs> I'm just like, oh God, I don't know if my memory is up to that mm-hmm. task. No, it probably is. I mean, I think I think having a bad memory is good here because you don't want, that's that's the, the, the worst thing I think is reading novels where novels that are overstuffed with research, most of them need like 10% of what they present, even in terms of description. So mm-hmm. I think that you know, I'm I'm trying to essentially bring it closer to oral storytelling. And the great thing about oral storytelling is that it relies so little on description. It can sort of present so much just through mood and through dialogue and through action. It doesn't need internal monologue to uh, give it heft. It doesn't need uh, six paragraphs describing a tree. Not that I'm opposed to it when, it, when the time is right, mm-hmm. but that kind of thing, I think, happens when you're too fastidiously holding on to research and to things you've written before. Right. And and it doesn't leave any room for the reader, really. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's the other point, is that the reader, that's the difference between fiction and film, is that reading is a creative act for the reader, who is also creating his or her own images. And you can't, you can't, uh, yeah, you can't over-direct the reader, in a way. So at what point in that process are you showing it to readers? You know, when I'm really excited about something, I get a little suspicious. I This happened recently where I wrote about 50 pages uh, and I liked them a lot, but I couldn't tell if I liked them just because I'd written them very passionately or because they were good. And that's when I knew that I wanted to show them to someone before I embarked on like six more months of work on them. And sure enough, my friend who I showed them to like didn't think they were that great. Mm-hmm. So that was a useful, you know, so I show it in many different stages. Like I'll show it. Yeah, I, I used to be much more of a nut about perfection and about hoarding my work. And I think that um, maybe I've gone too far in the opposite direction, but I show stuff in all states because I'm trying to uh, get over sort of my own ego. And also, I know that it only only the fi- the finished product really matters. What people see before it happens is not important. Did you notice? a difference between the writing process for family planning and then association of small bombs, you know, did you, did you feel like the first experience gave you lessons that you could translate into the second? It felt very different because I, I think that partly because I composed this book by hand, the association of small bombs, 
it felt much more organic. Mm. And again, as I said, I wasn't moving things around. I wasn't copy pasting as I did on a, as you do on a computer. And so um, it felt very much like one long thought to me, whereas family planning, and I'm happy with the overall structure of family planning for the kind of book it is, but it felt more like an assortment of scenes to me as I was writing mm. it. And uh, that was a big change. Like, I, I think I moved away from the idea of the scene as the main component of fiction with the next book. And I hope I can keep moving away from it because I do think it's a kind of orthodoxy, though just yesterday I was rereading Revolutionary Road mm -hmm. and I was reminded like, oh man, that's like a great scene is just hard to beat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think that, is that something that came up for you during your MFA studies or have you kind of always had that idea that, the, about, you know, challenging the orthodoxy of it? I think I've always had that idea, but I was one of those people who, I'm, I am one of those people who is a little bit of a contrarian. So when I was in an MFA, I felt like I was doing everything um, that was the opposite of what you were supposed to do. But that said, I don't think that the my readers really cared that much. Like, I think we tend to... Um, stereotype MFA students and most of them were very open to different kinds of experimentation and different kinds of form and um, I had a pretty positive experience with that. Do you like teaching? I do like teaching uh, and I've only taught for a semester at UT. I was teaching undergrads. I think the, the one thing that worries me about all kinds of teaching of creative writing is the fine balance between being encouraging and being dishonest. Like uh -huh. I think that I I I that I I feel like over the years I'm going to want to try to perfect a method of being very direct and honest with students about what their stories are doing without kind of you know upsetting them because um I do think that the American academic system tends a bit too much towards effusiveness and mm -hmm. encouragement mm -hmm. and that has to do with the kind of consumer um model that it's in you know where the students are grading the teachers right uh, at the end of the class, so so yeah, that that that's tricky. But I, I, you know, I didn't have. I mean, I really enjoyed it, and that certainly wasn't a problem with the classes that I taught. But I can see it becoming a problem in the years to come. Mm -hmm. Are you able now? You know, kind of about the business of writing. Are you able to sort of write and teach, and that's that's your work, or do you do you find that you still have to hustle to pitch things or or do other side hustles? You know, I, I mean, I, I think teaching and writing is probably what I will do moving forward from here. Uh -huh. um, but I still, I still think I probably couldn't live off my writing. Um, that I would need to have a combination of these two things. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'll go back to the world of nine to five jobs unless I really have to. Right. Right. What are you? Are you working on something right now? And if so, are you comfortable discussing it at all? I am working on something, but it's, yeah, it's, it's in too embarrassing a state to even bring up. For sure. Uh, <laughs> but it's a third novel and I'm, you know, I'm probably about, you know, a third of the way through my horrible process of writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I read this great thing, Alexander Chi, uh, in one of his tiny letters, uh, said that he always tells his students when people ask them what their novel in progress is about to just lie, because it's so terrible to be like that. If you, if you, you know, think that you're in a conversation where you can trust that person with, with what it is actually about. And they look at you like you're crazy. It just is. So everything is so fragile at that point, that it could just ruin it. I'm, and my friend, my friend, Ben Lytle, who's a novelist has a, has an even better answer when someone asks him what his novel in progress is about. He says, it's about myself. Which is, <laughs> which is which I feel is 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 both is also true. You know, it's always true of any novel, but that right. kind of ends the conversation. <laughs> How do you um you know, we talked earlier in the conversation about the sort of expectations that, that you had about your life when you were a kid in Delhi and you know where you might go from here and how can do you do you feel like you can engage with your family and your friends about your work or do you still kind of do they think that you do this weird thing that they can't really understand? Oh, very much the latter. I think that People don't understand what I've done with my life. They think I've thrown it away. They, you know, I mean, you get you get asked very basic questions when you go back home. Like people 
are always like, do you make any money from writing? <laughs> like people assume that even teaching is free. Like people are like, oh, are they paying you to teach? Uh, which I just find always kind of funny uh, yeah. as if, you know, like that somehow they think artists have nothing to do with the real world. Uh, but no, so, you know, most of the people in my, my parents are good readers, but my extended family, no one, I can think of no one really apart from one or two relatives who have ever even talked to me really about my work. And uh, same, the same with my friends. It's not a reading culture that I that I come from. I come from like a kind of mercantile culture. And so, I you know that the the nice thing is that Delhi is very much a literary city at this point. So I have lots of friends now who are writers and stuff there. So when I go back, I can um, I have them. But for years, it felt very lonely that I, I did feel like, oh, I have to actually be in the U.S. Partly because I, this is the place where I have a community that I would be, I would feel like the sort of lone person writing if I were in Delhi. Right. Yeah. It's that, that sounds, uh, that resonates, parts of that resonate with me as well. And um, it was funny when I started this podcast, like, you know, friends and family would get really excited about it in this way that was confusing to me where I was just like, well, but I mean, I make, I make things all the time, you know, and I think there's something about <laughs> writing that feels just so intangible to people, even though like you do have this physical object, it's like, okay, so, so you did what now? But then like, uh, I don't know, like an, a piece of audio felt somehow much more like salient to people in a way that I found really surprising. Right, right. That is funny. This is a question I like to ask everybody on the way out of the conversation, which is what creative satisfaction looks like for you right now. Uh, I think right now it would mean finishing this long article that I'm working on. <laughs> uh, and I, I do think that I do think that long form articles give give me a kind of satisfaction that um, is helpful for writing novels too, because structuring a long form article is really hard and it requires the same kind of focus and thinking that structuring a novel requires. So yeah, I think that, you know, being able to finish something like small right now might actually be a harbinger of, of finishing something bigger later. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.